Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Premier League returns. And in a summer where the only villa with pool most of us will see will be early July at Anfield, and the only place citizens are safely following the leaders is in the table, we bring you a handy primer of what's happened so far, what to expect as players emerge again, the five subs, the knee-length beards, all that stuff. Plus, we'll be rounding up this weekend's action in the football, Coppa Italia, Juventus and Napoli reaching the final, the Liga restart and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. That's right, listener. It's not just popular Nickelodeon characters that are coming out. Premier League sides are too. We are now just hours, quite a few hours, but hours away from the restart of the Premier League. And we have got Daniel Storey and Duncan Alexander and Michael Cox abuzz at the prospect. And here with us today. Hello to you all. Hello. Hello. Woof. Yeah. Premier League's back. Was it all just a crazy dream the last three months, Duncan? Uh, no, sadly. But, you know, it's mm. nice and neat that it's going to be 100 days between the Leicester Aston Villa game and the restart. You know, I like that. John Sands asks, will Wimbledon fans be rejoicing or disappointed that their record lowest Premier League attendance is shortly going to be broken repeatedly? <laughs> yeah, I like that tweet. And it's a weird one, isn't it? Because it is technically, uh, you know... Well, we won't know the attendance, but it'll be like 50, 60 people, wouldn't it? So, um. I think around about 300 is the... I mean, the, the practicalities and all the new regulations and that, the five subs, etc., we can get into or not. And also see to what extent, you know, many of the changes that we witnessed in football, say in the Bundesliga with the, the, the dearth of home wins and the increase in ball in play time, whether they're going to be replicated in, in the Premier League. But uh, broadly speaking, Michael, when you get excited about the Premier League's return, what is it that's lighting your fire? I mean, probably just watching some of the players who I'd almost forgotten about. I mean, I was, I almost had to revise some of the teams in the squad list. And there was just, you know, I went through and I just saw the name like, Dennis Pratt, who I thought about for three months. He's a really good player. Or Gabriel Martinelli or Minamino at, at Liverpool. Just like... Yeah, it does feel. I mean, it's been a bigger break than we'd usually have almost between seasons because you know the seasons seem kind of never ending now. They seem to start early and, and finish late. So yeah, it's just going to be kind of catching up and familiarising myself, and and a few players as well that um, maybe wouldn't have played a part in this season. Um, you know, someone like John McGinn at Aston Villa or David Brooks at Bournemouth. Um, you know, look to be fit and ready to go. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to all of it really. Or even uh, Harry Kane, you know, when he was ruled out for the rest of the season, I was like, well, he's still going to try and win the Golden Boot somehow. How's he going to do it? And it turned out he engineered a global pandemic. So he didn't really. <laughs> I am really looking forward to gorging it as a as a TV spectacle. It kind of feels like now the term armchair supporter comes with a bit of a uh, sarcasm and, you know, it's even used as a, a, you know, as a term of attack, I think, now. But we're all in the same boat bar a few journalists and a few, you know, anyone on the coaching staff or playing staff of a Premier League, we're all in the same boat. We're all going to be watching it together. And actually, I think that creates a kind of bit of a national mood around the sport, particularly the games on BBC. I'm really looking forward to seeing the figures for the first Premier League game on terrestrial TV. That's great. I mean, presumably that's going to be the most watched Premier League game of all time, right? Yeah, I the think so. Palace against Bournemouth, which is incredible because it's obviously the the 10th pick of the weekend, the 10th best game, the game that would usually be last on match of the day is actually going to be viewed by, what, 8, 10 million people or something? Just quite funny more than anything else. Well, that game's coming up next Saturday evening. We can look forward to that in Thursday's pod. Even before the Premier League's restart this Wednesday, massive amount of football already on this weekend with Spain and Italy and Turkey, uh, amongst others, joining Liga Nos and uh, Bundesliga. In action, briefly the headlines. We'll touch more on these stories later on. But in La Liga, Leo Messi shaved his beard off and Barcelona had a 4-0 win at Mallorca. Real Madrid, Sergio Ramos grew his beard on. He went full whiskers as the Madrileños beat Eibar 3-1 to stay two points behind 
at the top. In Italy, Coppa Italia semi-finals, nil-nil, Friday night between Juve and Milan, and a rather more exciting 1-1 in Naples on Saturday saw Juventus and Napoli through to the final, which will be held this Wednesday. Yes, you're right, that is Maurizio Sarri up against the club, where he became a legend. In Germany... Well, there was quite an extraordinary goal there. Kamada gliding past one defender on his way out of the box, then turning around and coming back in again past another three defenders before eventually slotting it across, chopping it back for an oncoming Andre Silva who just backheel flicks it in. Joy, that was yeah. Antrek Frankfurt against Hertha Berlin. It felt like a, a computer game being played on amateur mode, the way he was able to just run away from defenders completely at will. Meanwhile, in England, uh, an unnamed Norwich player has tested positive for COVID-19. One of two positive results from the 1,200 checks made across the division on Thursday and Friday. The player will enter seven days of isolation, missing Saturday's game with Saints. The rest of the Norwich team are not isolating. And despite the player featuring in a recent friendly with Spurs, neither are Tottenham, as they have been deemed not to have been in contact for long enough, according to those always coherent and consistent government guidelines. Daniel? Yeah, I think the, the point some are missing is that the Premier League are, are not doing this through isolation other than for positive tests. They're doing this through mass testing. So Tottenham's players will presumably be tested early this week and if there's no positives fine and the other thing to mention is I saw some tweets saying well doesn't that mean that Norwich have to go into isolation it's like well no because everybody apart from that player tested negative so um, if they all test negative as well it'll just be treated like a short-term injury in that the player won't be allowed to go to training and will be isolating himself but it doesn't really necessarily affect the rest of the squad. Of course these are uh, key moments key times for Norwich in their battle against the drop. Uh, More on all those stories later on. But listen, in the meantime, we've got some news of our own because we're delighted to announce that Muddy Knees Media, makers of the Totally Football Show, is now part of The Athletic. Yes. Don't worry, though. The show's not going to vanish behind a paywall. You'll always be able to listen to all our shows free wherever you get your podcasts. However, starting today, you'll also be able to listen to an ad-free version of the Totally Football Show on The Athletic app. By the way, sincere voice, why not sign up to The Athletic? Because there's never been a better time to do it. This week, you can get 50% off an annual subscription by heading to theathletic.com slash TFS. Michael, am I right in saying that uh, as of today, to celebrate the return of the Premier League, The Athletic has 21 pieces, including one for every Premier League club, which are available outside the paywall at The Athletic, all about the Premier League. They're all really nice short reads as well, I'd imagine. What, what have, you, have you done one for them? <laughs> I don't think I've got any that are included in that series. No, I think, uh, no, I'm, I'm either not important enough or too important to be outside the paywall, James. But um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We've got a writer for every Premier League club. So every club is covered in depth. And uh, yeah, those pieces should be good. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Yeah, I know it's June, but the Premier League is back on Wednesday. Now, we've been doing all these retro seasons for the last three months, but I think the campaign that I actually remember the least might well be this one. So to get us warmed up, what do you say? How about we have a little test, fellas, on events so far? Listener, see how many you get as I pose the following questions relevant to this Premier League campaign. August, Michael... Man City started like a train with a 5-0 win over West Ham, but which new arrival from the continent made a major impact in that game? Major arrival from the continent? Um, yeah. Rodri? Trick question. It's, it's oh, it's VAR, VAR isn't it? VAR, VAR. Sorry, yeah. yeah. It cancelled its first goal. Yeah, Sterling, wasn't it? Was it Raheem yeah, it Sterling? Was. <laughs> You're like a machine. Uh, September then. Who scored his sixth goal in five matches in a shock defeat of Manchester City? Daniel. Uh, Timu Puki. That's correct. And for balance, who did Man City that month beat 8-0? Duncan. Uh, Watford. It's the one of only two times in Premier League history where a team has scored more goals than their opponents have letters in their name. So, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Who was their manager? Uh, 
at that stage, Javi Garcia? No, yeah. it was Kike Sanchez. Oh, Flores. no, yeah, it was his first game, yeah, or second game. Yeah. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, Michael, October, Liverpool dropped their first points of the season. A 1-1 draw with Man United. Who scored Liverpool's goal? Uh, it was a late goal. It was either Shakiri or Lalana. I think it was Lalana. You're right, of course. Also that month, can you remember which 19-year-old grabbed a brace on his debut in a shock defeat of Spurs? Daniel, uh, can you remember Aaron... that one? Oh. Yeah, you know, don't you, Michael? It's all right. So you carry on, Michael. I, I did know it, but Michael, you carry on. I definitely knew it, but Michael, you carry on. <laughs> right. Michael's the one with his hand up. Me, me. Yeah, it was, it was Aaron Connolly, right? It was Aaron Connolly, yeah. He referenced Premier League years in the interview after the game, which was excellent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. He was like, I've seen these sort of goals on Premier League years and now I'm scoring them. I was like, that is impressive, to be fair. It's so weird referencing Premier League years and not just the Premier League as a concept. Yeah. It's fantastic. Uh, Liverpool in November beat Manchester City in the Premier League. What did that mean for Gareth Southgate's England team, Daniel? Uh, oh, is it the Joe Gomez, Raheem Sterling um, shebang? Yes. And in North London, Pochettino and Emery both left. What position were Spurs in when Poch walked? Ninth. Fourteenth. Fourteenth. Wow. In December. Yes. Nigel Pearson, David Moyes and Carlo Ancelotti all took over at Watford, West Ham and Everton. Tough question now. Who had actually been West Ham's manager till that point? Daniel. Uh, Pellegrini. Yeah, Pellegrini. that yeah. took me a while though. It's Pellegrini. Pellegrini. Pellegrini, yeah, sorry. Probably should say that right. Mm. Did he get the points for that? I'm not sure. Yeah, half a point done. <laughs> not sure. <laughs> for essentially the wrong name. <laughs> Who is also a manager. January, Man United uh, acquired Game Changing's Bruno Fernandes, who's had five games so far. Which is the only one that he's failed to get either a goal or an assist in? Uh, Wolves. Yes, his debut. Remarkable record. February, Liverpool finally lost a game. To whom was it and who got two of the three goals? Michael. Uh, it was against Watford. I think Saar got two. Yes. And finally, March. Who announced they had coronavirus and had in all likelihood passed it on to Mikel Arteta and his Arsenal players, causing, in effect, the season to be suspended? Uh, is it the Forest owner Evangelos Maranakis? Yes, well done, Forrest. As Colin yeah. Miller pointed out, how many lives were saved by that? Because it was Arteta testing positive that meant that that weekend's Premier League action was postponed. Yeah, helping football to help itself once again. It's probably mm. the biggest thing in Forrest history now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, well done, everybody. Wednesday it all starts up again. What we all know, of course, is that the title race... Is all but done. Liverpool, 25 points clear. They can wrap the title up this coming weekend. Relegation, though, in the race for Champions League places look especially interesting this year. We'll, we'll touch on all of these. Liverpool, presumably the most relieved club to be back underway, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the caveat here is null and void was off the table from a very early stage. So had the season not continued, we would have gone to points per game. So it's either a 99% chance of Liverpool winning the title by playing 38 games or 100% chance of them winning the title, um, having played only 29 games. So I think they were going to win it either way. But yeah, certainly they want to win it fair and square, if you like, in, in a complete, uh, complete league campaign. Yeah, I'm also very relieved because in uh, the paperback edition of my book, I announced that Liverpool had won the title um, because it went to print in February and I didn't foresee this happening. So in about three weeks' time, there will be one fewer uh, factual error in the book, which is great. Well, they're 25 points clear now, so that's looking good. They will be champions on Sunday. If Man City lose at home to Arsenal on Wednesday and then Liverpool win in the derby on Sunday. Wow. And then what's the rest of the season about, Duncan? What records can they set? They've got a good chance of beating City's 100-point record from a couple of years ago. Um, they're going to be the first team to ever win the league title in eight different decades. Um, their 25-point lead at the moment is the biggest lead at any point in any season ever. It's also the same number of points that Roy Hodgson won as Liverpool manager, which is a nice touch. Um, and they, they've won every game at Anfield this season. If they win the remaining games, they'll be the first team to win all their home games in the top flight since Sunderland back in 1891-92. So that is pretty rare as well. It's an interesting one because 
it's it's a very harsh assessment of them. But the reality is, is that if you start a season in the manner in which they did and are champions elect effectively by Christmas and champions in all but name by March when the suspension comes, um, it's quite hard for the gloss not to come off that. Now, supporters won't give a jot because of the long title drought before it, but with the way they went out the Champions League, with the way they went out the FA Cup to Chelsea, Klopp will be very eager to finish this season in the manner they started it. I mean, this season is already going to be known as the COVID-19 season, I suspect, but he will want to kind of seize that narrative and ensure that Liverpool don't just kind of coast home having dropped maybe another seven or eight points and just be known as kind of almost normal champions in comparison to the domination from City before. So I think it's quite important for Liverpool. Although I think, as you say, their supporters won't actually care a shot. Well, behind no. them... The chasing pack, 25 points behind Liverpool, are led by reigning champions Manchester City. And behind them, a bunch of teams all chasing Champions League places. And here's where it gets really interesting, because Man City's Champions League ban, which they're contesting right now, means that fifth place would get you into the Champions League. Now, right now, we've got Leicester looking good for third place. They're five points clear of Chelsea in fourth. Man United are currently lying fifth, just three points behind Chelsea. But Man United with Wolves and Sheffield United, just two points behind them. What's going to happen with Man City's appeal against UEFA's decision? Let's get a quick word now with Sam Lee, Man City correspondent for The Athletic. Sam, thanks for joining us. So UEFA banned City from the Champions League for two seasons for serious breaches of financial fair play. Why does City think they can get it overturned? Uh, well, they say they've got irrefutable evidence. Um, and kind of, who, who am I to doubt them, genuinely? I'm kind of, that's the thing I'm looking forward to most from this whole appeal at CAS. Um, them presenting this evidence and what it looks like and how they present it and all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, that's that's it, basically. They they haven't said a lot all the way through it. While the investigation was going on, they said, you know, the emails that were the, the basis of all the stories in Dash Beagle were taken out of context, and that was about it. And then when things started to get a bit more serious, they said, well, they've got evidence that they can prove that you know none of it can stick. And they, you know, the CEO did an interview and reassured fans that there's nothing they that they have to worry about. But personally... They haven't really shed any light on why that is yet. When is it that they will be unveiling this evidence? The, the appeal's being heard kind of at the moment, isn't it? Uh, it's It's been heard, yeah. Um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, last week. Um, and we're expecting uh, expecting an announcement. What did Cass say? First half of July, I think it's something around the 8th of July, I think, something like that. Um, so we'll soon find out what the verdict is. I think the full document with everything in, all the details, the written reasons, as it were, um, will be published many months later, and that will make for very interesting reading. But in the meantime, it sounds like we're all rather in the dark as to what their prospects are of beating uh, this ban. It obviously has a huge impact not only on them, but also other candidates for Champions League football from the Premier League next time around. What What's your guess? What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, well, it's difficult. Um, and to be fair, obviously I mentioned the irrefutable evidence because that's the biggest reason they think they can get it overturned. But some of the other things they'll pick at is going to be more like... Uh, loads of like UEFA specific regulations like in their own statutes UEFA can't go back and investigate anything that happened more than five years ago and they can't investigate any previous settlements Um, but they have done in this case the settlement period was 2014 so that was both more than five years ago and a and a previous settlement. So that's one of the things that City will try and pick out. And it's going to be loads of little things like that. They may even go down the route of claiming FFP is anti-competitive and this kind of thing. But I would say those are more technicalities. Those are more, well, you can't get us for that rather than we didn't do it. That's what I'm waiting to find out, basically. What's going to happen? I really don't know. I mean, I've heard some rumours of a settlement, but I'm not taking that too seriously at all. I can't imagine, I can't envisage a settlement that, suits both parties. I can't imagine City saying, OK, we'll take one year, a ban from the Champions League, unless they really know they're banked to rights and they decide that one is obviously better than two. Obviously, I can't see a settlement saying that City don't get a ban at all. I don't think UEFA would be very happy with that. Um, I, I really don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it got cut to one year, but I've, I realise that's basically the, the sports law version of sitting on the fence. But if I had to put my money on something, it would probably be the ban sticking, but being reduced to one year. But that's that's really just based on going right down the middle because there's really strong arguments on both sides, really. 
Well, thanks very much for piloting us through those murky waters, Sam. Verdict expected in the first week in July. All right, Tim Duncan asks, if Fifth wins the Europa League and City do get their ban, does that mean that sixth place is eligible for the Champions League? Daniel? Uh, no, I think the easy answer here is is no, and that's not my own working out. That's listening to other people's working out. But no, sixth cannot get Champions League football, I think is the conclusion. Uh, I'm looking forward to a thousand people replying to the pod to say that they can, but no, I don't think so. Right, I'm looking forward to that increasing listenership, personally. As it stands, I'm joking, of course. As it stands, uh, I mentioned City second, Leicester third, Chelsea fourth. They're all guaranteed their Champions League places if they stay in those positions. Man United are currently fifth. Imagine if City's place went to them. But they've got Wolves and Sheffield United only two points behind them, and then Spurs, and then Arsenal. Arsenal are five points off fifth place, but with a game in hand which is, of course, Wednesday's trip to the Etihad. How big is that game going to be? That's Arteta's first return, of course, to his former place of employment. Yeah, I think that is a big game. I mean, um, yeah, interesting backstory here maybe is that um, when Arteta first went to City to join Guardiola, Guardiola actually had such faith in Arteta that he put him in charge of City for a game uh, they were playing away at the Emirates against Arsenal because he knew so he knew Arsenal so well. Um, you know, he was in charge of the scouting and in terms of the lineup and the tactical changes. So, yeah, having effectively coached City against Arsenal, he's now going to coach Arsenal against City. And I, I think actually Arteta should probably benefit quite well from this break. I mean, of all the managers, he he took over and he really had to do a rebuilding job at Arsenal in terms of the the structure of the side and the, the way they were playing. They were an absolute shambles under Emery at the end. And he took over just in that Christmas period where Arsenal had four games in nine or ten days or whatever. So I think three weeks on the training ground um, probably would have been quite useful for Arteta. So I'm interested to see how Arsenal play. Yep, they've been eliminated from the Europa League, but Arsenal are still in the FA Cup. And as I mentioned, five points of fifth. There's going to be some smouldering tension, though, in this game. Pep having brought in his former mentor from Barcelona days as Arteta's replacement. So it's going to be all kind of jealous glances across from one part of the touchline to another, I think. Yeah, I mean, Arteta's had coronavirus as well, so he can, you know, roam wherever he likes, I imagine, in the stadium. But um, it's easy to forget, <laughs> actually, Arsenal, they have been drawing a lot of games, but they're the only unbeaten Premier League team in 2020. Um, and only Liverpool taken more points than them this year. So it is a work in progress. But yeah, like Michael said, hopefully the, uh, you know, a bit like Tottenham actually, because Mourinho wanted a pre-season, didn't he? And he managed, managed to get one. So uh, yeah, they could hit the ground running, but it's still a pretty tough reintroduction to football. Michael, what do you think Arteta might do differently? Or what differences do you think we'll see in Arsenal's approach after this, uh, this suspension? Well, in fairness, I, th- I do think he had a big impact um, even in the, the couple of months he was in charge. I think Arsenal completely changed the way that they played, having been very reactive and quite counter-attacking and quite defensive and um, kind of changing system from game to game. I think when Arteta took over, they they had a very obvious system and shape and it was, it was quite unusual, but I think it, broadly speaking, got the best out of a lot of players. I like the job he's done with, with Saka in particular. I think he's been pushing on brilliantly from left back to become a left winger but I just think those you know extra time on the training ground to work on more kind of combination play maybe better um, counter pressing when they lose the ball I think is something that obviously City do very well under Guardiola and, and Arteta will want to incorporate there so yeah just just the little things I mean as Duncan says I think his his impact so far has been pretty good but uh, yeah maybe Arsenal will just go to the uh, go to the next level so to speak. I guess they'll also be pleased that Unai Emery uh, doesn't have access to five substitutions per game because, you know, he loved making like multiple half-time substitutions. I think he'd have got a bit carried away. <laughs> it's also, a, you know, it's a, an interesting period for City because it's it's very unusual that they go into, or certainly under Guardiola, that they would go into the last part of a league season it pretty much not mattering in that they won't win the league and they almost certainly won't finish outside the top four. And even if they do finish in the top four, as we've discussed, it might not matter anyway. So it's a really odd period because clearly there is a, by the sounds of it, there's going to be a Champions League mini tournament to come at the end of this league season. It'll be interesting to know if Guardiola's 
almost considering the first few league games like pre-season friendlies where he, he really concentrates on getting his players up to speed and doesn't take risks with injuries to key players. We know, for example, Sergio Aguero's hamstrings are are tricky. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if he rests a few and then builds them up to speed in order to kind of start a mini season that ends with the biggest moments of their season, which is going to be the Champions League. And, and clearly City as a club want European domination as well as as well as domestic and they're not going to win domestic trophy this season you know not the Premier League so it'll be really interesting to see how he approaches it I think you know Guardiola has always been a guy who's you know he, he obsesses about the minutiae and he will want to win every game but there's an argument for City taking it easy in those first few games absolutely well, the redhead dude writes in, he says, who has benefited the most from the Premier League hiatus? Spurs and Chelsea, he offers us big shout due to injuries. Man United probably uh, figure in that list as well, where Marcus Rashford had that back injury. But is he now back fit? Is Paul Pogba actually going to feature for them again? And what will the suspension mean to Bruno Fernandes' extraordinarily productive insertion into the team? What do you make of Man United, Daniel, and their chances of hanging on to the newly important fifth place? Well, it's an interesting one with United because you're absolutely right that, that Marcus Rashford and Paul Pogba's absence will, was keenly felt and, and Solskjaer would want them both back. But they were also on a run of... 11 unbeaten games in four competitions before the break. Uh, and I think Solskjaer has always been a manager. We've seen it with him at United that once he gets in a little run, he kind of, he can exploit good form and probably struggles to to turn around a negative situation. So I think he probably would have preferred to carry on playing as they were with, with Fernandez in form and new and even without Rashford. But it will be. I mean, the, the the big question about United is is how he fits in Pogba and Fernandes into into one midfield, and whether that necessitates a change of shape or um, a kind of reinvention of of how they play up front. Because Fernandes was was brilliant, but effectively in a free role for those first few games, and that might not necessarily be the case now. Just to put um, Fernandes's kind of impact into context. If he gets one more assist, which I expect he will at some point, um, he goes level with uh, Juan Sebastian Verón's entire Premier League career. So I would already say he's been a better signing than Verón. I've been pretty critical of Solskjaer during his period at Manchester United, and I think you know, in, in in general, that's been fair enough. But I was I was kind of looking back at Liverpool, just kind of doing an article about how they've kind of built over four or five years into a title contender, and there was a point where. Klopp's Liverpool were kind of at a similar stage to what Manchester United are now in terms of they were very good on the counter-attack and very good in the big games, but they weren't so good at breaking down the, the smaller sides. And obviously Liverpool no longer have that problem. And, and that's the next step for Manchester United, I think. they I mean, Solskjaer's been a pretty good tactician in the games against City, um, the game against uh, Chelsea. They played very well. And for a long time, they were the only side to take points off Liverpool. But yeah, it's, it's the games against... Uh, you know, your Burnleys, for example, that they are sometimes unconvincing in. They can get Pogba and Fernandes into the side, two players who can kind of pull a rabbit from the hat, uh, so to speak, then, uh, yeah, they could be a, a real force. Right, OK, so good against the big teams, but they struggle against the not-good teams. What does that mean when they take on Spurs in their first game back, which is coming <laughs> up on Friday? Spurs, who certainly got in a lot of training... They were, you, you could barely go out in a park in London without bumping into Jose Mourinho, <laughs> one of his players, seeing a bit of the old covert running around. Uh, they were in something of a crisis prior to the pandemic. But again, as Redhead Dude mentioned, injuries are going to be less of a worry, I think. Now, Harry Kane suddenly back, as you mentioned, Duncan, to uh, complete the season, perhaps. Yeah, they're pretty much at full strength. I mean, Deli Alley's obviously the first ever Premier League suspension for hubris, I think. Um, he's obviously serving a one-match ban after, you know, making light of coronavirus in February. But yeah, I mean, Marino, as I said earlier, he he complained that he, I think it's the first time he's taken over a club and not had a pre-season. Um, and magically, he's managed to get one. So yeah, I still think they've obviously got a, quite a lot of weaknesses and the defence still isn't convincing. But, you know, as you say, they're in it, they're not that far off the pace. Harry Kane absent since New Year's Day, now available after that hamstring problem. Song Hyung Min recovered from a fractured arm and getting top marks in his military service, which is now completed. And the other clubs also in the mix there, just two points behind Man United are Wolves, who are sixth, and Sheffield United, who've only lost twice away from home all season. 
Incredible. Could one of them snatch one of those Champions League positions? I'm a little uh, at the risk of um, making a similarly spectacularly bad prediction that I did about Sheffield United at the start of the season. Um, it's a really tough run for them now. You know, they have been astonishing this season. The only two teams to beat them in the league since December the 5th are Liverpool and Manchester City, which is absolutely remarkable but they do now they play Aston Villa in that first game then they play Newcastle but then they've got seven games in a row the last seven games are against teams that are currently between third and tenth so it's going to be a huge test of of their ability to kind of carry on and, and Wilder's ability to not let them settle for what they've got because as you say they're in a they're in seventh they're in a Europa League qualifying position at the moment but there are a huge number of teams behind them who even now are favourites to overtake them for that I think. The team that we haven't mentioned actually from this cluster are Chelsea, who are in fourth place, despite having a not particularly impressive run of results before the suspension. Of course, things may have been boosted or certainly will have been impacted by the news that Timo Werner is almost certainly going to be joining them for next season. Just before the break, it was all about Gilmore, though, wasn't it? Do you remember everyone was getting wild about how incredibly he'd come in to the side and how composed he looked? What, what is he, 17? Mm. Yeah, and they've got a huge number of options now. And you look, you know, across the the front line with you know, Olivia Giroud signing signing a new deal. Obviously, they've got Tammy Abraham and now Werner. They've got Pulisic, Hudson Odoi, Pedro, and William will probably leave, or at least one of them will. But in central midfield, you know, Gilmore, Kante, Kovacic, Jorginho, Barkley. There's so many options there for Lampard. Uh, and this is going to be a time of the season, admittedly not with with Timo Werner, but it's going to be a time of the season when clubs clearly do use that squad depth and Chelsea haven't really got any excuses on that. All right, so Liverpool are going to win the title and then Leicester and Chelsea are going to get into the Champions League. Is that fair? Who's who's You're grimacing, Daniel. I think Manchester United will finish fourth ahead of Chelsea now. Really? Now with Rashford and Pogba, if they can make that work, then yeah. I guess the, the one team up there we haven't really looked at is Wolves and um, extremely loathe as I am to say this in the presence of Michael Cox, but they could become the first team in Premier League history to come from two girls down to win a match three times in a season. They've already done it twice. And I think that kind of, they've won the most points from behind as well. That, that kind of resilience is probably going to stand them in good stead over the next few weeks. Are you saying they're going to get one of those Champions League places? Yeah, why not? Excellent. Michael, who have you got down? I I don't know, but I think it's very open. I'm not really sure how much we're meant to look at form from three months ago. Probably not much, but I mean, Leicester and Chelsea, neither of them had looked impressive. They had looked like they were kind of flagging and, and tailing off. And I must say, I think I think Sheffield United are a really good team. I mean, I agree with what Daniel says about the schedule, but I think they've been slightly underestimated in terms of people just think they're punching above their weight for a newly promoted side. But the more you watch them, their passing patterns are just so good. Their defensive record is the second best in in the league. I think maybe what will hold them back is is they don't score enough goals. They haven't really got one prolific striker. But, um, you know, as I say, I was kind of going back and revising some of the the teams I needed to just have a think about in, in terms of, you know, remembering what they're all about. And Sheffield United just stood out as being a really, really good football side. So um, I think it's going to be really tight. And of course, the fact we don't know what's happening about City means, um, yeah, all sorts could play out. But I think at both ends of the table, it's going to be really interesting. I think for Sheffield United, it would be nice for them to get this. Um, you know, they are pretty unlucky. We all know the Tevez thing from the 2000s, but also less well-known is they're the last team to get relegated with a positive goal difference when they went down from Division 3 to Division 4 in 1981, which is really hard to do. So, um, yeah, I think, I think they've earned a shot at the Champions League. And also, they would be the only team to have won their only title in the 19th century to get into the Champions League, which is quite good. What, of all the teams in the Champions League ever? Yeah, they're like, they're, their last title win was in 1899, and yet they're in the Champions League, potentially, yeah. in, in 2021, which is, yeah. No, I see. But are they the only team that has... Would they be the only team that's done that in the Champions League? I would... Yeah, they are. <laughs> it's a safe he doesn't bet, sound sure it? to me, James. Mm, that's a punt, right. but... OK. But, yeah, it can't be anyone else, so... Unless Preston... <laughs> oh, yeah, the uh, Preston season in the Champions League. No, I meant in other countries. I was yeah, but I don't other... think teams would have been formed that early enough to do it. Yeah, that's fair, in leagues, actually. so, yeah. yeah. All right, then. Well, in a second or two, we'll be hearing about what Michael just described as a very interesting situation down at the bottom. 
Remember all the things that used to get your goat about football? Silly haircuts, sillier time-wasting tactics, VAR, diving, Michael Owen on the commentary? Well, we haven't had football for quite some time, so when you think about it, silly haircuts are better than no haircuts. Time-wasting? Ah, longer games. VAR is just implementing the rules. Diving? It's an art form these days. And Michael Owen? Who can forget France 98? Football is back. All is forgiven. Paddy Power. 18plusbgambleaware.org This is the Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Listen to it totally ad-free on The Athletic. There it was, last time a ball was kicked in the Premier League and it was busy ending up in Aston Villa's net there at the King Power. They lost 4-0 that night, it was their fourth straight defeat back in March and there they sit as things return in the bottom three alongside Norwich and Bournemouth. It's very tight, though. How tight? Well, Norwich are six points from safety, and they've just had a player test positive. Villa are next in penultimate place, but they, Villa, are only two points behind the next three teams, Bournemouth, Watford and West Ham, who are all level, and Villa have a game in hand on those three, which is coming up on Wednesday against Sheffield United, so no guarantee they'll take any points from that. Uh, The good news, though, is that they're another team that did have Significant injury problems, at least some of which should be a lot better now. Uh, Certainly John McGinn, I think, back in the picture now. How positive do you feel about Aston Villa's prospects? Um, Not particularly positive, I must say. I mean, McGinn is is a big boost to have him back. I mean, clearly the strongest part of their side is is him and Grealish, particularly when they played together in the 4-3-3, I thought worked really well in, in central midfield together. I mean... For me, this could be the most interesting part of, of the Premier League because I think unusually these sides at the bottom of the league are very strong. I mean, you look at Norwich, who are, what, six points off survival. I mean, they seem to me like a good side with Pukki, with Cantwell, with um, with Wendir, with the fullbacks overlapping. You know, if they're 20th, I think it says a lot about the standard of the teams at the bottom. So, yeah, I mean, personally, I, I do worry a little bit for Villa. I think they've got too many weaknesses in, in defence, really, to... Um, to stay up, I mean, they've considered the most goals in the league by by quite a distance. Um, my suspicion is that the three teams in the relegation zone at the moment might be there at the end of the campaign. Um, I think Brighton and, and West Ham have pretty deep squads and I think probably more suited to, you know, lots of games in a short period of time. And I just think Watford have... They weren't great just before the um, just before the break, but I think under Pearson they're a very different side to um, under the two previous managers. And yeah, I kind of fancy them to get themselves out of danger. Mm, the only team to beat Liverpool this season, so it'd be a bit harsh if they they did go down. Who, who's who are you worried for, Daniel? Uh, I'm worried for for Bournemouth because um, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I, I quite like Bournemouth. I think they are quite an optimistic club with a quite an optimistic manager who try and play, in inverted commas, football the right way. But they're a very optimistic side that isn't scoring enough goals and isn't creating enough chances. And they've always been leaky at the back in in the Premier League. And it's kind of a case of chickens coming home to roost this season. They didn't sell Ryan Fraser last season and he, he clearly would like to move on. They lost David Brooks to a season injury, which we might see him back now, but the damage is already done with that, I think. And and I think they still have to play five games against teams in the top eight. And I, I think that'll just be too much for them. Yeah, you could make the similar argument for West Ham. Though. Their, their first three games back of Wolves, Tottenham and Chelsea. Um, and then they've got Manchester United in the penultimate game. So, you know, that could uh, could tell. But I think just to back up Michael's point about Villa's defence, they've got the worst XG against in the Premier League this season. Um, they've conceded more long-range goals than any other team. Um, and Pepe Reina, who's had a you know, variable lockdown. Um, he hasn't been in his own penalty area for 15% of the goals he's conceded for the club, which for me, for a goalkeeper, <laughs> call me old-fashioned, but I like goalkeepers in the penalty area generally. So. <laughs> All right, well, it's a big day on Wednesday then. Uh, Villa will be taking on Sheffield United at 6 o'clock and then Man City against Arsenal at the Etihad at 8. And following that, there'll be a brand new Totally Football show. Reviewing that action, looking forward to the weekend's games. Up next, let's hear from contrarian James Horncastle, who's going to be explaining why we shouldn't watch either of those games on Wednesday and plump instead for some top continental content. 
Hey, listener, as a follower of the Totally Football Show, you probably have a pretty decent amount of football know-how. What if there was a way of putting that knowledge to use? Well, there is. It's Football Index, a platform for betting on the future of the world's top footballers. Use all the information you've been sitting on since football went on hiatus. And now that it's back, build a portfolio of the players you think will rise in value and win dividends when those players perform on the pitch or in the media. You can download Football Index today on Android and iOS. And when you sign up using the offer code TFS20, you'll get a seven-day £500 money-back guarantee. That's the promo code TFS20. Terms and conditions are available at trade.footballindex.co.uk slash money-back guarantee. It's 18 plus only, begambleaware.org, and please trade responsibly. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listener, as mentioned before, if you're not signed up yet to The Athletic, there's never been a better time to do it. Because this week you can get 50% off an annual subscription by heading to theathletic.com slash TFS. It's been a big weekend in that Europe, and there's a big midweek ahead. Germany have got a midweek round. Could well see Bayern win the title. There'll be more Liga action, because that's basically wall-to-wall now. While in Italy... It's the cup final. Let's start with that. The Coppa Italia at the Stadio Olimpico in Rome Wednesday evening. Juventus taking on Napoli. Maurizio Sarri against the club that made him. James Horncastle joins us now. James. Hello. Hello to you. What, what, what a story this is. Maurizio Sarri against his former team. Yeah, with the prospect of winning silverware or a major honour in Italy for the first time because the only trophy that he ever lifted um, during his time as a coach what back in the lower leagues was with Sansovino, uh, which was the Serie D uh, Coppa Italia. And now his chance to actually win his first major honour with the Juventus comes against the team, as you mentioned. He made his reputation with and also was very much a kind of not only a legend, but seen as some kind of cultural icon in Naples. You know, they, they used to hold banners of him, which looked like uh, Che Guevara. Uh, he very much said about storming the palace and uh, having a coup d'etat against the establishment and the establishment in that sense were Juventus. He now is part of that establishment. Um, so it's going to be fascinating to see what happens, not least because in the last encounter between these two sides in January, Napoli won. And Sarri caused a little bit of controversy among Juventus fans by saying, if I was to lose to one team, you know the one that I'd like to lose to? It would be Napoli. Right. Well, it may happen again this Wednesday. Juve didn't look particularly impressive on Friday night when they scraped by 10-man Milan. Cristiano Ronaldo, in particular, in his first game back after the suspension, uh, looking a little bit out of sorts. Yeah, I mean, I think it has been reported that he missed the penalty, but if you watch it again, it's a fantastic save from Gigi Donnarumma. Um, Beyond that, now, though, his, his touch was way off, no? His touch was off. I think they had opportunities, certainly in the first half hour. I thought Juventus actually played quite well. In fact, <laughs> Sarri said over that first 30-minute period, it was the best he'd seen Juventus play all season. Maybe he was just thinking about the restart and, uh, and was saying it was the best 30 minutes of that 90 minutes. But in terms of playing one-touch, two-touch football, um, they practically played the entire first half hour in Milan's half. But then again, as you rightly point out, James, that's not too difficult when Milan went down to 10 men after 17 minutes. And even before that, were without Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Teo Hernandez, who's been a revelation for them this season, and also Samuel Castillejo, who's been pretty good under, under Pioli. So Juventus do need to improve. I think people are still waiting to see Juventus play 90 minutes worth of the kind of football that we associated Sarri with at Napoli. And instead, it seems we're getting sort of 90 minutes worth of the, the football we associate with Sarri from Chelsea, um, really? which uh, wasn't exactly what was billed when Chelsea appointed him, what, uh, two years ago. Mm, indeed. The good news is that Napoli at least looked much more lively in their game Saturday night against Inter. They conceded early in this one at the uh, San Paolo after Christian Eriksen nutmegged Ospina, scoring directly from the corner kick between Ospina's legs. But then Ospina redeemed himself and how? <laughs> well, he set up essentially the, the, the goal which would see Napoli through to the final. Very quick thinking sort of punt towards Lorenzo Insigne on the left-hand side. Insigne was then in a foot race with the slower Christian Eriksen and 
Great presence of mind from Insigne to, to pick out Mertens, and Mertens became Napoli's all-time top scorer with his 122nd goal uh, for the club. Pallone centrale Mertens! E arriva il pareggio del Napoli con il gol numero 122. But Ospina also, even after that, um, absolutely key um, to Napoli going through to the final. He made four critical saves um, from Kandreva, particularly one from Christian Eriksen again in the 82nd minute. But of course, he won't be at the final, James, because he also got booked for time wasting. So Ospina had an absolute roller coaster of emotions on, on Saturday night. And it looks like Rune Gattuso will have to go for the guy he essentially dropped in favour of Ospina after a 3-1 uh, defeat to Inter in January, and that was Alex Merritt. So uh, that's going to be one of the variables um, that we'll see on, on Wednesday night in the final in Rome, which also will be the 50th anniversary of uh, El Partida del Siglo, the, the game of the century between Italy and West Germany, the World Cup semi-final at the Azteca in Mexico City. So hopefully the final will be as compelling as that one. Napoli then within one game of ending their season on a really triumphant note, which is remarkable given how many problems they've had throughout this campaign. The famous mutiny, the threat of legal action by the club against the players, Carlo Ancelotti getting fired, Gattuso coming in, but a terrific run of form that they're on at the moment. We've seen, as you, as you mentioned, a 2-1 victory by Napoli over Juve back in January. Before that, there was an extraordinary 4-3 game between them back at the start of the season. This time around, who do you see as favourites? Well, at the moment, I think Napoli, because they've got really nothing to lose. Um, I think the way that Cattuso has completely shifted uh, the mentality within this squad away from all the negativity that we saw, um, particularly in December. Um, you mentioned the mutiny, the fracture between the dressing room and the boardroom, um, how that was ever going to be repaired. I think it, it looked certainly beyond Ancelotti and it was going to be an insurmountable task possibly for his replacement. But Gattuso has managed to do that. I think what he's done really well is he just simplified things. He's got them playing a 4-3-3, um, he's got every player playing in their preferred position. So in senior, for example, left wing, you've got Fabian Ruiz playing on the right side of midfield. I mentioned the change of goalkeeper as well, which which seemed to make them a little bit more secure, even though Spina can concede from corner kicks. Um, and they play more counter-attacking football, I would say, than we've associated Napoli with, with some time. And they've got the players and the personnel to do that with, um, you know, Insigne and Cajon and Mertens, as we saw on Saturday night in the goal that sent them through. So in some respects, you'd expect um, Juventus with the depth and the, the higher talent ceiling to, to be the team that wins this game. But I think it's going to be a very competitive game, particularly with Napoli being so able to raise their, raise their game on the big occasions, as we've regularly seen over the last six months when there's been football played. Okay. That's 7.45 on Wednesday. And you can watch it on BT Sport 1 from the Stadio Olimpico. Now, Tuesday, meanwhile, could see a title one in Germany, where, checks notes, Bayern Munich could win the Bundesliga title. They'll be visiting Werder Bremen. Werder Bremen, who this weekend got a really big boost to their battle to beat the drop and continue their 39-season stay in the top flight. They beat... Uh, Paderborn 5-1, which put them level, Bundesliga relegation fact fans, with Uwe Rosler's Dusseldorf in the relegation playoff spot. Dusseldorf themselves have been beaten, you may have seen this, agonisingly in the 95th minute by an Erling Haaland header against Dortmund. Bayern on Saturday got a 2-1 win against Munchen Gladbach and it's all go. Elsewhere, we mentioned that fabulous goal that Andre Silva scored for Eintracht Frankfurt. If you haven't seen it, do go and watch it repeatedly. And uh, Union, uh, they ended their long losing streak to move a little bit away from trouble. More where that came from Tuesday and Wednesday in the Bundesliga. Also, there'll be more Spanish action this midweek because, of course, they're playing every day there since the Seville derby last Thursday night. Alvaro Romeo in a second, but Duncan, I know you want to pitch in on Barcelona's win and Mallorca. Yeah, I think anyone who was playing lockdown restart bingo um, would have been surprised, I think, to see this game had a pitch invader um, in it, which I, <laughs> I genuinely wasn't expecting in this period of football. So um, not only did Messi hit 20 goals uh, yet again in a season, um, yeah, a man tried to get a photo with him. 
Right. What did you make of the artificial fans as they were billed, which turned out to be kind of vaguely hovering blobs of colour? Yeah, it's, it was quite... It reminded me of Brian Lara Cricket on the original PlayStation. <laughs> yeah, that is a great, that's a great comparison. It was well kind done. of like looking at the old North Bank at Highbury when they redid that, but, but really drunk. Uh, because it was just sort of a... And for your third lookalike of, of the section, it also looked like a magic eye in that they just, they just didn't bother to put the people in. They just had shades of colour. I think if you were going to go to the extent of doing that, just have actual, you know, have have people rather than just blurry masses. But uh, yeah, I like the sound, but I did not like that. And it was curious as well when they were doing the minute silence at the start for the, the victims of, of uh, coronavirus that they switched the artificial fans off and instead had various kind of messages. And it looked like sponsors logos as well, which felt wrong. But the other weird thing when you're watching it on TV, and of course, it's the only place you can see these uh, virtual fans, is the fact that they are perfectly in focus, which does my eyes in anyway, because they're behind the pitch, but they're in the same pin sharp focus. So it just looks like somebody put a large graphic over one half of your TV. (laughs) Yeah, not good. Well, very shortly, we'll be hearing what was good in the Liga restart. When we're joined by Alvaro Romeo right now, though, it's time for a quick chat with Lee Price of Paddy Power and Ben Green. Thanks very much, Jim. By Lee Price is on the line to finally talk about some Premier League games. None of this Bundesliga or La Liga nonsense. All right, Lee, let's start off with City versus Arsenal. Give us the overall here. And also following on from what we were talking about with Sam Lee, is Pep still going to be at City next season? Well, I've forgotten almost everything there is to know about football. But here's one thing I could have guessed. Arsenal, the outsiders here. The mid-table visitors, hi Arsenal friends, are 7-1 to one to win this, almost as lengthy as the gaps between substitutes. City are odds on 3-10 to 10 to get the three points, but since I've given Arsenal a dig, it's only fair I do the same to City. We're odds on that UEFA uphold at least part of their European ban, and similarly, we make it 8-13 to 13 Pep leaves at the end of the season. Ouch. He's odds on to be the next Juventus manager, for what it's worth. And just one other game for us to catch up on. It's Sheffield United versus Aston Villa. Can Villa avoid the drop? Hmm. Sheffield United, the favourites here on the road, clearly are trading watching the Bundesliga rather than working. Tut tut, lads. Villa need the win, of course. They're odds on to get relegated, priced at 4 to 11, second favourites to go down. If they do take the three points here, though, which we price at 23 to 10, the whole relegation picture will shuffle around all over again. Currently, we have Bournemouth and Norwich completing our bottom three, but West Ham, Watford, and Brighton are all between two and three to one to go down, and those prices will move as the results start to come in. Juicy. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddypower app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Right. Liga is back. And so is Alvaro Romeo. Wow, you had a busy weekend. Starting off Thursday with the Seville Derby. Yes. I mean, it was very nice to have a derby to start with. Uh, Of course, we know that... uh, they are playing behind closed doors, but uh, there was still this festive feeling because finally football was back and uh, Sevilla managed to win it. So even if we are back after three months uh, having had no football at all, uh, Sevilla was better than Betis in March and they are still better than Betis in June. And they won comfortably with uh, Lucas Ocampos being the star of the show, really. He has been probably all together with Martin Odegaard, uh, the two best signings in La Liga this season. And Ocampos scored one goal. He fabricated another one with a beautiful um, backheel assist. And Sevilla mm-hmm. got uh, three important points because at the minute they are third in the table and uh, they are a strong candidates to qualify for Champions League next season. Yeah, so four points. Uh, them and uh, Real Sociedad ahead of the uh, two teams in fifth and sixth, who are Getafe and Atletico Madrid. Your lot, Athletic Bilbao, had a 1-1 draw Sunday with Atleti. How damaging was that, do you think, for Diego Simeone's crew? Well, a little bit. The last game Atletico de Madrid had played it was uh, the, the victory at Anfield. And uh, Diego Pablo Simeone gave uh, a lot of confidence to Llorente, the guy who scored two goals for Atletico uh, that uh, glorious night. And Llorente played behind the striker, Diego Costa, who scored a goal. But Atletico de Bilbao had scored first. Uh, Iker Muniain uh, scored a beautiful goal after a great pass from Yuri Berchice, probably the best uh, 
left back in La Liga at the minute. And uh, yeah, it was a bad result for Atletico de Madrid. They have drawn already 13 games this season, which is uh, uh, impossible to be at the level of Barcelona and Real Madrid if you if you draw so much. And um, yeah, it was, uh, again, like uh, another chapter in a very strange season for Atletico de Madrid because they can't score goals. They have scored only 32 and it's not because they don't have any talent up front. They've got Morata, Diego Costa. All right, both haven't been fully fit the whole season, but they've been there. And also Joao Felix, uh, who happened not to be in Samamés, but Atletico uh, put a really strong lineup in uh, against Atletico de Bilbao and they just mm. don't produce enough goal chances. I mean, they always have one or two strikers available, but none of them seem to get the rhythm and start uh, scoring goals. It was a good weekend for Espanyol. Uh, the only ones of the bottom five to win, and now you've got five teams separated by four points down there, looking very tight indeed. At the other end, uh, pretty narrow, the margin between Barcelona and Real Madrid. Still two points. They both won. Which was more impressive for you, Alvaro? Uh, probably the most impressive thing was Messi. I mean, uh, watching Messi play football and watching the rest of the games are different stories. I mean, it's a real pleasure to see him play. And I would say that Barcelona was slightly more convincing because they had Messi on the pitch and he created a lot of football. He didn't uh, perhaps uh, score two or three goals as, as he would have done in the past, but Barcelona doesn't play that way anymore. So he managed to score his goal at the end of over the 90th minute of the game and Barcelona won comfortably uh, against Mallorca, which is probably one of the softest uh, Spanish teams at the minute. And uh, there was a pitch invader in that game between Mallorca and Barcelona. And I think that this is quite remarkable because, you know, La Liga has a, a protocol in place just to make sure that... Uh, you know, everything was under control and no one spread the coronavirus. And suddenly there is a guy who just jumps a fence and he manages to get onto the pitch. And, uh, and yeah, uh, he wanted to, to get a picture with Lionel Messi. He had a, an Argentinian shirt on and uh, yeah, he basically he managed to skip all the, all the safety measures that right. uh, La Liga took. We were just talking about the virtual crowds. We're not fans. We like the sound. But the kind of blobs of colour, which sometimes cut to promotional messages, I, we find a little bit weird. What do you, yeah. What's been the reaction in Spain to the virtual crowd? Uh, there has been a mixed reaction, really. Uh, and I believe that that uh, fits with what I think. I... I was totally against it when La Liga said that they were going to put like a, those kind of arcade um, supporters in the stands. But when I see it, uh, sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. Of course, it's a bit strange when there is a close-up or a corner kick and you see that there is nobody there. But uh, it looks slightly better to me. I don't know why. I don't. I think that uh, what we have seen in Bundesliga is just uh, the skeleton of the stadium. And this is an illusion. It's only an illusion. And of course... Uh, I think that the, the supporters could have a better resolution, but at the same time, I prefer to see it. And uh, one thing that I didn't like uh, too much either is the fact that uh, in some certain channels, you couldn't choose whether you had the original uh, sound effects or the fake sound effects. And I believe that the TV uh, viewers will have that option. Alvaro, that's fantastic stuff. Look forward to your further updates on, the, uh, well, on this extraordinary spiralling climax to the Liga season. 32 days in a row of football, as far as I remember, and this is going to be non-stop games. Lovely stuff. Well, did I mention if you're not yet signed up to The Athletic, there's never been a better time to do it. 50% off an annual subscription this week. So get yourself down to theathletic.com slash TFS and read great writing by people like and including Michael Cox. What are you writing this week, Michael? Uh, football matches. So the Premier League is scripted then? I, I knew it all along. <laughs> I'm being... Uh, I mean, a little bit like on this uh, on this podcast, we've had a few months of having to do retro features and that kind of thing. So, yeah, just being able to preview games and, and obviously do the post-match analysis on Arsenal City will be fun. Um, so, yeah, just looking forward to having day-to-day football to talk about, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. Although I've loved doing the retro features, mainly thanks to your... Your, your insight and perspective. And that's something we do, a lot of people have been asking, that's something we, we will be looking to continue where we have time because they are kind of throwing a lot of football at us in the next... Well, actually, 
18 months, I think. But anyway, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> there's going to be some windows to kind of step back and appreciate things. And uh, that, that'll be great. But do you know what? That's pretty much it for today's Totally Football show. We'll be back on Wednesday night stroke Thursday morning with our reaction to events at the Etihad and Villa Park. Uh, many thanks, Daniel, Duncan and Michael for today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope Santa Football brings you everything you wish for on Wednesday and listener will catch up with you then. And now from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.